This is Science by the Slice, a podcast from the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences Center for Public Issues Education. In this podcast, experts discuss the science of issues affecting our daily lives, reveal the motivations behind the decisions people make, and ultimately provide insight to solutions for our lives. Hello, and welcome to Science by the Slice. I'm Philip Stokes, one of the hosts of the show and education coordinator at the UF IFAS Pi Center. And we're back for season two. All of us at the Pi Center are excited to produce a whole new season of fascinating and thought provoking episodes. 2021 was our first season, and we have a whole slate of new episodes lined up for 2022. In season one, we hosted monthly series on different topics that included COVID 19, industrial hemp, the food supply chain during the pandemic, rural mental health, hurricanes, mosquitoes, the effects of heat on our bodies, harmful algal blooms, science communication, and agritourism. If you missed any of those, you can of course go back and listen anytime. And for this very first episode of season two, we're going to do a bit of looking back and looking forward. In looking back, we'll hear from some of our previous speakers, and while doing so, The main idea I'd like to focus on is trust. Trust is one of the ideas we discuss frequently at the Pi Center when conducting social science research and also in our education programs. Trust is interesting because when it exists among groups, you don't really think about it or notice it, but when there's an absence of trust, it's very apparent. So to dive into this theme a bit more in this episode, I'd like to start off by playing some clips from season one. And I think it's fitting to start season two right where we started season one, with the topic of COVID-19. These clips are from our January 2021 series about the pandemic. Keep in mind, the statements being said here were recorded in the latter part of 2020. That's over a year ago, before vaccines were widely distributed throughout the U.S., and when there seemed to be many more questions than answers as it related to the pandemic. Up first... This is Dr. Ilaria Capua from the University of Florida's One Health Center of Excellence. Okay, for so for this one, this one is is not going to go away. It's not. It 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 is here to stay, and it will continue to circulate for years to come. It will most probably continue to circulate in a vaccinated population, which is good, right? Because we will have a vaccine, and so the number of severe cases will go down. So um, now what we can do with our behaviors, which is what we, we were, you know, actually it was very clear at the start, was we could flatten the curve. You can't zero the curve, right? That means that the virus will continue to circulate. However, you talk about behaviors, and my question for you is, um, what if, everybody knew and had personal protective equipment like masks at home that would have allowed them to stop the initial spread. And so this goes back to behavior. And I think that we must, we must learn certain things that the pandemic has shown us to make sure that the next time we do much better than this. And here's Dr. Glenn Morris, director of the Emerging Pathogens Institute at the University of Florida. 
And I, I think we'll probably reach the day where getting a coronavirus vaccine is something that one does routinely. Um, and uh, again, we're still not sure how long protection is going to last. But, you know, if I were to bet, based on our understanding of the uh, immune response to the to the human endemic coronaviruses that just cause the common cold. And keep in mind, you get a cold every year. So if you're infected one year, you're not necessarily protected the next year. We, we may well need to be immunizing everybody annually, um, similar to what we see with influenza. So, you know, when you go to your doctor's office, uh, he or she may well say, okay, time for your flu shot and your coronavirus shot. But again, that's, it's hard to say for sure. We're way too early in the process to predict. But nonetheless, I think we are moving into a situation. I mean, this is not going to be like measles or some of the other childhood vaccines where you get the vaccine once or maybe once or twice, and then you're protected the rest of your life. The odds are we're going to be, all of us, becoming very familiar with coronavirus vaccines. Um, really for the rest of our lives. Okay, so if I take away one thing from these two clips, it's this. That both experts were pretty spot on with their assessment and prediction of things to come with COVID-19. You know, one of the things the COVID-19 pandemic has done is put science and the work of scientists in the public spotlight. The public is engaging in science in a way that has potentially never happened before, People can access information about new discoveries pretty much as they happen, which is why this topic, the pandemic, is one we can examine when thinking about trust and trust in science. Here's a clip from the same series in January of 2021 with Dr. Shelley Rampold, currently an assistant professor at the University of Tennessee. I spoke with her when she was with the Pi Center back in late 2020. She explains how the sources that people say they trust aren't necessarily the sources people use for day-to-day -day practical life. We consistently see concerns about other people knowing the key information that they need to know to make a decision about A, B, or C, whatever it is that we're talking about. And we consistently see people say that they would be more likely to use these trusted, you know, official sites or um, sources of information or that they trust these official websites or sources and, and whatnot. And then when we do a little bit more deeper of information analytics of where people are actually getting information, they say, I don't, I don't trust social media, but that's where they're seeing information. So it's, it's kind of creates a little bit of a conundrum for us in communications of like, okay, they say if they had their choice, they would get it from trusted source A, B, and C. They trust source A, B, and C, but when they're actually seeing information, it's information shared by Uncle Joe through Aunt Sally from somewhere else. And that's where they're actually receiving it. So like where they say they would go and what they trust versus what they're actually using looks very different. So it's, we're kind of, it's kind of a challenge for us in the communications field of what do we do with that information? We know where they, you know, we know these things, but we know what their actual behaviors are. So what do we do with that now? In that clip, Dr. Rampold is discussing not only the science information or the substantive facts, but also the source of the information and how that influences trust. 
Obviously, information sources, that is, who you're hearing something from, is a major factor in one's level of trust. Listen now to Michelle Miller. She's a social media influencer on the topic of agriculture and farming. This is from our October series on science communication, and Michelle discusses how she thinks about building trust with her followers. Yeah, so I think that's the beauty of a lot of bloggers and influencers is that when you build a following, you build trust. And mm-hmm. my goal is, you know, yes, do I talk about science and everything, but I want people to know me. And that's the beauty of social media as well is when when you have a platform, people get to know you. They see, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of like 20 other people off the top of my head that I follow. Why do I follow them? Because I see their homes, their children, their pets, their husbands, whoever it is that you feel connected to them as a person. And so you just want to follow them because it's just like anything, like what TV shows do we watch and why? You know, Do they make you laugh? Do they make you cry? Do they feel something? And so when you're trying to have a voice in the discussion, it's important to keep it real, right? If it's too stiff and stale and boring, you're not really going to generate a following. Clearly, there's not just one way to develop trust amongst a group of people, and there are many different outlets and styles to communicate science information. In fact, many scientists have used various platforms of social media to communicate information related to the pandemic. One big question going forward is how much does the COVID-19 pandemic influence how people think about science, the work of scientists, as well as people's trust in the scientific enterprise overall? I'd like to close out this brief encapsulation of season one with respect to trust in science by playing one last clip about effective communication. Here's Dr. Lisa Lundy, Associate Professor of Agricultural Communication at the University of Florida. She also spoke in our October series on science communication. Here she talks about how effective communication is more audience focused than anything else. I think the essence of really good, effective science communication is learning to listen well. If you're communicating on behalf of a scientist or learning about a subject that you have to communicate with, you have to really learn to listen to that scientist and or to a group of scientists and what they're telling you about their work and what it means and why it's important and actively listening to them. The flip side, if you're trying to communicate to an audience, I think you have to learn to really listen well to that audience and let them tell you what they care about and what their needs are and what they're interested in and looking for, okay, there's actually a researcher at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Dominique Broussard, who I, I love just listening to what she has to say about science communication. And I've heard her say that really effective science communication is finding a rug that we can all stand on. You know, I think about right now, of course, everything is about COVID-19 and vaccines, and there's all these different viewpoints about vaccines. But for really, for most people, we do care about our health and we care about protecting our families and and the people that we love. And so that's a rug that we can get everyone to stand on. And then how can we build from that to create mutual understanding? And um, so to me, that's A lot of listening is what's required for good science communication. (music) 
So far, we have been looking back at previous episodes of our podcast, and now let's take a look forward. Over the next two months in February and March, we're hosting a series about the role of land-grant institutions and how they are changing, particularly with respect to diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice. You'll hear leaders at the University of Florida ask some tough questions and discuss some of the challenges of the past. And because of that, they, they could never really fully be uh, what they were capable of being or, or producing what they're capable of producing because they simply just did not have access, did not have access to some of the programs and so on and so forth. So it was, a, it, it was this limitation. And so one of the things that even at a young age, I, I always knew that somehow uh, I was going to work to 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 deal with that, to come up with a solution for that so that uh, uh, others would not have the same issue. We also have to look at the land-grant mission itself. Did the land-grant universities still perform their mission? Uh, the premise of the Morrill Act was inclusion. You know, those that, you know, couldn't previously attend a college now could. In this series focusing on diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice, Researchers and administrators discuss the social landscape at land-grant institutions and talk about what's to come based on a growing awareness of the differences and lived experiences among groups of people. We're really in a time where folks understand how their own lived experience influences the way they look at the world. And so they're really wanting to gain that lens and framework so they're able to have that same set of awareness and reflection based on the lived experiences of others. So it's just really, really cool and exciting to see folks that are um, engaged and wanting to be engaged to develop their own skill sets and develop themselves as people. We acknowledge our problems. We acknowledge our, our um, shortcomings, but that's the first step into making things better. But I'm here. Uh, I see it every day that it's a state that believes that we have challenges, but we're going to overcome them and uh, things will get better. And so uh, I've only been here a year and a half, but I, I wake up every day just being happy that I'm um, you know, grateful that I'm in a state that has a, um, a view of the future that is positive. So be sure to subscribe to Science by the Slice so you'll be able to listen to this next series over the months of February and March and all the other great episodes we have lined up after that for Season 2, including the topics of nutrition, honeybees, water quality and environmental contaminants, and mental health and substance misuse, just to name some of them. If you have any questions about the podcast or if you'd like to share any feedback, you can email us at piecenter at ifas.ufl.edu. That is piecenter at ifas.ufl.edu. I want to thank everyone involved with Science by the Slice, Michaela Kanzer, Rachel Rabin, Valentina Castano, Sydney Honeycutt, Ricky Telg, Ashley McLeod-Morin, and Elena Poulin. I'm Philip Stokes. Thanks for listening to Science by the Slice.